Hi and welcome to today's exploratory journey episode. Today I'm joined by Janet, who is head of strategic finance at Hopin, and we discuss everything from working in banking and VC to startups and being an angel investor. Hi and welcome to another exploratory journey episode. Today I'm joined by Janet. Hi, Janet. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Vid. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Exciting to be talking to you today. Thank you. Um, will you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about like your career journey and what you're up to currently? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe I'll do it a bit backwards. So uh, currently I'm head of strategic finance at Hopin, a virtual events uh, startup scale up at this point. Um, I've been there for about a year. And before that, um, I was briefly an interim CRO at Exate, a cybersecurity startup. And then I come from um, first a hedge fund, then investment banking. And after that, I was a founding employee at a venture capital fund. So I've kind of done a variety of finance and tech in the early few years of my career. That's really cool. And I guess you've kind of gone through just about everything in the finance world and explored where you want to do uh, where you want to go. And you've kind of ended up doing finance in a startup, which has grown massively in the past year. I think the pandemic has just accelerated it. My first time using Hopin was for an online conference back in March 2020. And since then, I've just seen it go from growth to growth. Um, and like it's it's got unicorn status now. But I wanted to touch on your role at Hopin. What does it kind of involve and what is strategic finance for those who don't know what it is? Sure. So um, my role has evolved a lot. So I'll talk a little bit about, um, I guess, what it was in the beginning and how how it's kind of become a more steady state now that we're about 700 people. So I was employee number uh, 90 something and uh, the second employee in across finance and accounting. So in the beginning, I was focusing on everything to do with finance that wasn't accounting, plus a little bit of accounting just because all hands on deck. Um, so everything to do with our SaaS and software metrics like recurring revenue, um, growth, uh, top line, headcount uh, in an early phase as well I used to look after and then on top of that when we launched into things like our series b um, helped prep us for that built the financial model did that um, ran the process around that and then we've been pretty acquisitive as well we've acquired other companies in, in related spaces so um, for the first three or four acquisitions um, worked on the diligence ex execution integration and now that we have slightly more specialist people um, doing more of the integration work um, into our, our financials and metrics but really I'd say it started out being a very generic finance role where I was doing a lot of what I already knew in, in banking and VC um, but from the other side of the table and then now it's a little bit more of a financial planning and analysis role, which is a branch of, of in-house finance that is really popular. And my role is largely to look after our growth and, and revenue and SaaS metrics around that. So um, I'm getting a little bit more specialized, but uh, I feel like I've, I've seen the best of, best of our growth journey and I'm really lucky to have seen that. 
and you've done so much across that space and you've probably done a lot that your job is not the same every day which is really interesting I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about what it's like working at Hopin particularly because Hopin has grown so fast so quickly and it's a lot of startups take a couple of years at least to grow to the position in which Hopin is at today but Hopin has just like boomed particularly because of the pandemic. Yeah absolutely I think um, Hopin, Hopin's idea was kind of conceived pre-pandemic and naturally we have benefited from the pandemic not just in terms of revenue growth but also in terms of educating the market on why why it's necessary to have virtual events. I think people understand things like Zoom and meetings but virtual events and, and the idea of being able to unite people um, without barriers to entry of cost um, accessibility etc has become more and more important and then in terms of um, what it's been like for our scale I mean it, it I mean from my perspective it's definitely a once in a lifetime kind of career opportunity where if you look at a precedence in the market other high growth companies the only companies who have necessarily done this before um, are slack a new iPath at the rate of growth that that we've seen. So we're we're very lucky to be to be recognised by by the industry as say a market leader contender and also to to benefit from from growth. But in terms of what that translates to in in working terms for people inside. Hopin's an intense environment. The people are lovely and everybody's come from a very high achieving background. We I'm very humbled by um, the people I work with, where they've come from, what they've done. They've come from big tech companies and where they've done it all before. Um, but they're doing it all again and everybody rolls their sleeves up and it's all hands on deck. Um, it's an intense environment. So it reminds me a lot of banking days where you know, you have a deal to execute and you go ahead and do it because we've been acquisitive or we're, we're launching a new product that almost feels like a deal unto itself and, and it's all hands on deck and, you know, from my side involved in the pricing and, and the revenue metrics on that. So it's an intense working environment, but we're all united by a common goal and it feels like we're kind of part of a sports team, if that's a good analogy. Um, so... We work hard, we play hard, but we have a lot of fun together. That's really interesting because I guess the pressure is also really high um, at times, especially like you said, you've acquired a few companies, which I've read about. And in any acquisition, if you're in banking or if you're on the other side of the table, it's going to be the closer you get to like sign off date, it's going to be very high pressured but do you have any particular big challenges at Hopin that you've faced and how have you kind of overcome them? My challenges personally have been keeping up so the way to think about strategic finance in a high growth company is that you're always on the back foot because you outgrow all your systems so when you go from um, say 1 million in ARR to 10 million in ARR, your accounting systems probably become redundant. When you go from 
50 people in headcount to 500 people in headcount, your HR systems, your payroll systems, everything that goes in the back have probably become redundant. Um, so those are just a couple of examples. Even our, our CRM, you know, your uh, customer relationship management systems, everything needs upgrading because you're just growing so fast. You need a tool in your first kind of, um, say, getting to 1 million in annualized recurring revenues or even five, but then there comes a tipping point where those tools aren't fit for purpose. So we're always trying to upgrade our systems and, and be, be on the front foot, but you, there is always that interim period where it doesn't make sense to have an IPO grade system to do, do your data analysis, for example. And um, I'd say the biggest challenge is always keeping up with the growth and also then being able to continue to enable it by the insights that you generate as well. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem where your growth creates your scaling problems and then your scaling problems, you turn into growth and, and you're just kind of running on that hamster for a while. I guess on the other side of that, the fun thing is that you're always seeing growth and it just keeps growing. There's so many new things that come with growth. But I wanted to just st touch on the early part of your career. So you studied at Imperial and you studied maths and then you kind of went into investment banking. I know you mentioned you started in a hedge fund before investment banking. How did you kind of end up going into banking? What kind of motivated you to go down that path? And then from banking, what was it like transitioning into VC? Yeah, honestly, I... It was a very weird thing, but I knew I wanted to go into banking when I was about 16 or 17. So going back to A-levels times, um, I was doing maths, further maths, economics and in French, and I loved business. I loved everything about business. I had my own little lifestyle business where I used to design greetings cards and it used to keep me out of trouble and give me enough pocket money to kind of live my life. And... I, I had a great economics teacher, but also my dad was very helpful in helping me navigate what I wanted to do. And I said, based on what I like to do and based on my interest in business, um, what do you think I'll enjoy? And my economics teacher used to nominate me for a lot of these insight days at banks. And I would go and learn more about investment banking and the life cycle of a company. And I found that very interesting. Um, I kind of knew banking wasn't a forever game, um, but I thought it would be a great training ground to learn a lot about how, how companies work, what they look like, um, how to apply my quantitative skills to something. And yeah, I, I was pretty sure about banking. And then um, I happened to do an internship at a hedge fund because I just wanted to build as much experience as possible. So the rest of my internships were all in banking. And then there was this one at Citadel, which was, um, which was great. Uh, I learned a lot about the other side. Um, I think a lot of people didn't understand why somebody who loves math so much wants to do more M&A rather than trading, because I think there's a stereotype that if you're more um, mathematical, you're going to build trading models. And that's not necessarily the case. I think, 
I, I like to keep a really broad skill set. And I think the, the two years I did full time in banking gave me everything I needed. And that that there was there came a point where I realized, and I think this is this is kind of crucial to every decision I've made in my career so far, is you kind of look around and you say, are there people here that I want to continue learning from? And I got to a point in banking where I was very fortunate. I was in a very hot team that did a lot of deals. And two years in, I'd done something like seven deals. And, you know, there are desks in banking where you're lucky if you get to do one deal a year. So I was very fortunate to get a very concentrated amount of experience. And then when I was asking around about, well, you know, should I stay in banking for, for another promotion or what do I do? And what what's next? It kind of came across that it would be more of the same. And I felt like that would slow down my learning. And at that age, that, that wasn't appropriate for me. So I started exploring more into the venture capital market because that aligned more with my business anyway. And it felt like a very natural evolution. And, um, yeah, I, I applied for a variety of internships in venture capital and um, I, I met my would-be boss actually at a fund where he was about to leave and then he ghosted me for about three months and I thought, oh, I must have done really badly on this interview, but it turns out he was always leaving and when he, he was setting up his next fund, he, he asked if I'd like to join that. And that's how, how I got into venture by getting rejected from, from another fund and ending up at a fund. That's a really cool journey. And I, I think that it's really interesting how you've ended up at a later stage venture fund, because I know when I necessarily think about VC, I always think about early stage investing and um, VCs that invest in like the next big thing which is going to change the world but actually I haven't really delved into later stage um, VC and like things like growth what differentiates kind of early stage and later stage VC I know it's kind of like um, later stages investing in companies which have gone through previous rounds of funding and have developed to a certain stage and what made you then choose to go down that route that's a good question. I'd say the average deal that I was doing at the fund was Series B. So that was later stage play we were doing with the fund size that we had and the check sizes that we could deploy relative that, to that fund size. But I'd say banking profiles leverage their skill sets best in later stage. And my bias is, and this is definitely my bias, that it's easier to do later stage and move earlier stage to an extent if you have the interest, because when you see companies when they're a little bit more fully formed and they have monetization and um, you can understand their, their return on investment a little bit more and their growth precedent, you have data to work with and then you meet a lot of companies and maybe you meet thousands that have kind of to this late stage position and you're learning about their stories and what it took to get and in the back of your mind you're kind of building this 
playbook of what all these companies have done. And then you can apply that kind of thing to something early stage where you know how all these companies scale because you met them, you have the privilege of analyzing the investment opportunity into them. And then you see those ingredients, if you call it that in, in earlier stage um, companies. So I thought later stage would be a good fit for me, banking background. I think a lot of product backgrounds do really well in earlier stage where they can just see the value in a product very early. And that's a skill set I'd love to develop and I'm trying, but it's not necessarily my, my core skill set. Um, but honestly, when, when you're starting out, the reality is it's very hard to break the VC. And from my perspective, I wasn't going to be picky whether it was early stage or later stage but I am glad that I ended up starting at later stage because I think it taught me a lot. And who knows if I ever return to venture, maybe I'll do early stage. Yeah, I was about to touch on that and breaking into VC because it's probably like one of the few careers, a bit like private equity, which is notoriously known to be very, very difficult to break into. And like investment banking is competitive, but VC and private equity is just like a whole nother level. And how do you think you face those challenges when trying to get into VC? Um, and what advice do you have for someone who wants to pot potentially go into VC and maybe they're very early in their career, like they're a uni student or a recent graduate who's just started like a role in banking or consulting? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think more people should be addressing it because it was very hard to break into VC. Arguably, my, my struggle wasn't that long once I kind of made up my mind that I was going to leave banking and go to VC. I think it was a process of six months and I was very lucky for that. Um, I met the right people at the right time. I didn't necessarily have a network that would naturally lead me into VC. So it was a bit of a discovery process while working in banking, which you know can be pretty demanding unto itself. And um, a lot of the advice I was given was, why don't you actually go to private equity first and then go to VC, i.e. do two years in banking, do two years in private equity, and then go to VC. And that was kind of the guidance I was getting from some of the recruiters I knew at the time. Since then, I've met much better recruiters who have taken care of me in a much better way. But it was, it was almost like recruiters at that point when you don't have a network or a bit of a gatekeeper. And if they put you forward for a private equity interview to maintain the relationship, you feel pressure to take it. So I started interviewing with a lot of private equity uh, names that everyone's kind of heard of. And honestly, from my personal experience, it felt a bit like banking 2.0, where you would be doing these kind of tough hours, um, the lifestyle doesn't really change, and your ownership of the work doesn't really change either. You're still at the bottom of the pile. And arguably with even less resource because the deal teams are even smaller in private equity. So I went through a few of these interviews where I realized that, you know, I, I just really don't love this industry um, in the sense that I love finance, but I don't think I want to use private equity simply as a stepping stone to get into venture capital and delay any entry into that industry. Um, so 
I would get to a few final rounds and I think I was just fluffing them up at that point where they would ask me, you know, why do you want to be here? And I'm, I'm a pretty straightforward person. And if I can't answer that question sincerely, it won't come out. So um, it, it just wouldn't come out. And then, then I started applying directly to venture capital um, where I realized part of the problem is that it's very hard to know when they're actually hiring because they're either using recruiters that you need to know or they're hiring within their networks or there's just no process around it and you need to just be in the know that they're hiring and um, what I did because I felt like okay if I need to have more work experience more private equity or something else to be able to get in I will apply for internships in venture capital so I would get rejected from some funds because they said well you're working full-time already why would you want to do an internship and from other funds they would entertain the idea because they would say well it makes sense that you want to get your foot in the door and you're, you're applying for an internship so I would apply to a bunch of internships and um I guess the last one I got rejected from converted into a job offer at the next fund. So it was it was kind of tough to really figure out where to go, especially when you didn't have necessarily a network and also you're kind of time poor because your day job is more of a day and night job as well. well I guess the lucky thing is you ended up where you eventually were very happy. Um, and I wanted to touch on kind of your role because um, because you were one of the first employees that probably came with a lot of challenges, but also a lot of learning. And I know you spoke about how private equity was basically just banking in another name. Um, and whilst VC in particular, your role was essentially you're doing a lot more with a higher level of responsibility. What was it like working in VC particularly as one of the first employees and do you have one big learning experience that you could tell us about? Yeah sure so I think being on the ground first meant that I got to see everything from getting the keys to our office to eventually signing the lease to when we moved on from a WeWork into our own own leased office and and setting that up which I loved but you know we had to design our playbooks of how we were going to diligence how we were going to present ourselves everything on how we run our deals how we do our portfolio management and seeing all of that through was the kind of intense learning that I like I, I really love being thrown into the deep end and having to figure it out when I particularly when I haven't done it before and that forces me to read a lot talk to other people figure out what's market best practice um, and just keep iterating and building on that so even though I was only in VC for a total of three and a half years and we deployed fund one I felt like I learned so much about the fundraising life cycle what it takes to build a VC brand I think that was a big learning um, and all the operations that go around it, which also gave me a hint at what building a company would be like if you have to, you know, make a website and get an office and promote yourself. Um, so there are a lot of parallels to starting up because it was a startup venture fund, I, I suppose. 
but I'd say the hardest thing was really and the biggest challenge was really getting our name out there as a venture fund there are a lot of VCs out there um, a lot of um, individual venture partners and general partners they have individual reputations I was new to the market neither did I have a reputation nor had anybody heard of my fund so it was it was a big challenge to build a brand for our fund start doing the first deals because it's very hard to show entrepreneurs what you're doing when you haven't done anything before so getting the first few deals through the door was tough but I'm really proud of having done it and then I guess becoming part of an industry as an absolute newbie both as as an individual investor but also with your fund I'd say was a huge challenge but I'm really glad glad I did it and um, I'm not sure I would be a founding member of a fund again um, because it might not teach me as much the next time around but I'm so glad I did it that way. And I think since then you've built up such a big personal brand and um, I'm going to touch on your angel investing experience in a bit but I just wanted to quickly touch on like you jumping ship from VC which is still quite financy based to a COO role at X8 and like what made you move and how what was it like and then you know since then you've moved on to Hopin which we've spoken about. Yeah so I guess I actually left venture not knowing what I was going to do next but knowing that I needed to challenge myself in a different way so we were we were at a point in venture where we had pretty much deployed fund one and it felt like we were going to do more of the same. Um, So I was in a position where we were about to raise fund two. I was also finding out that in the later stage spectrum, we were going even more late stage. So I, and given what I've already said about going earlier stage, the idea of being dragged into growth and maybe even private equity was a little bit Um, not in keeping with what I had in mind. So it just made sense at that point to say, had a great innings here, glad to have deployed fund one. But if if I stay, I would have to commit myself for another three to four years to deploy the next fund. And I was 27 then. And, you know, age, age always plays on my mind when I'm making my decisions. And I thought, do I want to still be here when I'm 30 or do I want to be more in an operating position and learn a little bit more on that side? So I just took a blind leap of faith and I said, thanks, um, I think it's time. And then I left. And then I had a little bit of garden leave time uh, during which time I did a coding boot camp to get myself a little bit more product aligned. And in that time, I was consulting for a few startups, helping them prepare with their fundraising decks and stuff like that. And that's also the moment I started angel investing because I was no longer conflicted with with my day job and I could invest in things I was passionate about. So Exate was actually one of the companies that approached me. I was speaking at um, at a networking event about uh, fundraising and I must have been on a panel or something like that and Exate's founders just came up to me at the end and they said we'd really love to talk to you 
um, I had no idea why or what about. And they said, we love what you said about something. And I'm like, I, I, I don't remember what I said, but thank you. Um, so then the next, the following week we met, I started doing some consulting work for them. And then a couple of weeks later, while I was doing coding bootcamp, they, they said, why don't you just come and join us full time? Um, so I took the leap because I really love the team. I'm still really good friends with them and in touch with them. And COO was kind of a, a hybrid role of doing the finance stuff, but also setting up all the processes for scale and making sure they could fundraise. So um, prepared their fundraising, got a term sheet, um, and then the pandemic hit. And everything became a little bit chaotic or we had a, an investor behave really badly with us after having signed the term sheet and um, unfortunately we lost that investor about three days before the money had to be wired and then it was a bit of a crisis management situation where I was going back out to the market to to do their fundraising so I finished their fundraising and got them to a good place but then I started to think about what could I do to learn more than just be responsible for fundraising and, and that kind of thing. And like you, I attended an event at Hopin or hosted on Hopin in the early part of 2020 when the pandemic had pretty much just broken out. And I was just super impressed with the, the product. I was obviously aware of their very large seed round at that point in time. It was kind of market leading by London standards. And um, yeah, I went on their website and noticed that they didn't have any roles necessarily for ops and finance or strategy. They would, they would bias towards roles in product engineering and sales at that point, understandably. And, um, but they had this little, little black box where they said, if you're interested in, um, in working with us, but you don't see a role that's that's open um, that matches your profile, just leave your CV or resume here, and um, we'll we'll get back to you. So I put my CV there. I didn't expect anything. I've I've never really done that before. I um, I was quite kind of oh well, it's it's nice to nice to drop that in. And then in June, as soon as they had announced their Series A, I got an email saying we've opened a role in strategic finance that we think will suit you really well. Would you be interested? And the rest was history within, within two weeks. I, I signed my offer and here I am now. Uh, that's just such a cool journey, how you've kind of just explored just about every avenue in that whole like kind of industry and how you've really figured out where you want to be and also how every role has helped you learn something new and you're very passionate about trying to keep on learning and around the whole idea of lifelong learning rather than sticking to one thing forever um and I know we touched on angel investing and it's a really big passion of yours particularly supporting women in angel investing um but for someone who doesn't know what angel investing is or what it involves can you tell us a little bit more in your story and how you got into it sure so angel investing is when an individual um, invests into a, a company to help them grow, usually at the very early stages. So um, anybody can be an angel investor, really. Um, usually it's advisable that you know what you're doing at the minimum, but it's, it's actually a pretty accessible form of investing for most people. 
and um, angels quite often come in very early into a company, so a pre-seed or seed round, sometimes when VCs aren't even involved or they follow a VC in a very early round. So it's angels are just individuals like, like you and me who, who have the opportunity to put money into, into these companies. And most VCs are not allowed to angel invest. Before VC, I never really did any angel investing, um, also because I wasn't allowed necessarily <laughs> with my banking role either. That There are just a lot of things that you're prohibited from doing. Um, and then one of the things I was really, really excited to do once I left venture was actually invest independently. So the, the motivation behind it is when you're investing with a fund or with a VC, you're looking for criteria that fit the fund. So it might be that they need a certain level of monetization. It might be that they need a certain track record. It might be that unless it's a billion dollar outcome, you're not interested. But actually there are a lot of companies that might not have a billion dollar outcome or they might not have a track record or they might not, they might not tick all those boxes, but you instinctively know that there's something good there. So angel investing for me is a lot about backing the founders and the ideas. So it is very classical early stage investing. So that piece that I, I didn't do before. So, so basically I've, I've just started trying to be more early stage in mindset, at least on an independent basis. And I've met some amazing founders this way. Um, but what I, what I was increasingly aware of, both in terms of deal flow that I was seeing as a VC and everything I read, um, there are a lot of organizations promoting diversity in the ecosystem of tech and venture. Women founders and underrepresented founders are overlooked for a variety of reasons. And there's just a lack of capital flowing into more diverse communities. And there are also ideas that might be a little bit left field. Um, for example, women's health, that in a market where venture capitalists are predominantly men and white men at that, they don't empathize with women's health or they don't empathize with other issues. And that's why those issues that are entirely profitable issues that can really become a real company they're not charity cases don't get funding and I would see it time and time and again as a VC but then I said if I'm going to be in an angel investing capacity I am going to invest based on my beliefs it doesn't mean you fund something out of sympathy it's not about that you fund something that you fundamentally believe has value and you fundamentally believe that these founders can execute regardless of their gender, their skin color, their religion, their socioeconomic background, their physical abilities, but you just know that they can execute. So I'm trying to practice that a lot more. Um, and I am hoping that a lot more diverse backgrounds enter angel investing as well because ultimately you need diversity on both sides of the table to really make it work. That's something which is really 
um, a big issue currently is like the diversity within the whole VC ecosystem. And I feel like because from your end, angel investors don't have the large amounts of money that VC funds have, and you are right, even if you come together as a group, as a syndicate, um, you're not going to be investing as much as a VC fund would. But by bringing that diversity into the ecosystem at one point, it's probably going to in the long term have a big effect, which is great to see. Um, and for students and for people who are necessarily not within the ecosystem or are getting into it, do you have any tips or an advice for someone looking to get into angel investing and how to go about it, researching it? Because of course, there's a lot of risks associated with it too. Definitely. I'd say a common misconception is that it's only high net worth to angel invest. The smallest check size I've done in angel investing is $1,000. So you can actually do smaller checks. And then obviously with Cedars and Crowdcube and such platforms, you can probably go even lower subject to you being interested in those kind of deals and opportunities that are there. So the first big misconception really is the amount of capital you need to get going. But obviously as a student, $1,000 is still a large amount of money. So I'd say if you're trying to break into angel investing or even venture capital in a longer term, cultivating an investor mindset is always gonna help. So learn as much as possible about what it's like to invest. Um, angel list is, is a great resource. Everything that Novel Ravikant says um, on Twitter, I'm sure you're a big follower as well. Um, there's just a lot of wisdom out there. So find good angel investors to follow. There are a lot of, there's a big micro fund culture building up and the people managing these micro funds are really interesting angel investors um, who've built their careers, just angel investing and being part of the tech ecosystem. So following people who've kind of been there and done that is very interesting, but also sourcing interesting deal flow and sharing it with people who could invest is a great way to get started. So I know quite a few people who are hustling now who can't necessarily afford to angel invest, but they bring me deal flow <laughs> or they bring people they know deal flow and they say, hey, you know, are you interested? And I mean, if you're doing that in an advisory capacity, you can, you can monetize the advisory or if you're doing it to, um, I guess, impress a VC that you want to work for, they'll certainly be impressed if you send them high quality deal flow. That's, that's essentially what a VC wants. They just want great deal flow. It's their job to source deal flow. So if you're bringing them, bringing them that, you're already winning and you're networking. So acting like an investor, even if you can't afford to do it, even if you're not one, reading all the press, reading everything that's going on, more than halfway there capital is obviously very nice to have to deploy but it will come I'd say getting that mindset is so important because it shows everybody just how much you want it and just how cool you are at doing it and if there's anything I'm kind of picking up from is that every aspect of your career be it from banking or VC or angel investing or working in a startup which is fundraising to hop in and the stuff you've learned from each one plays into your current role and I feel like that's something which isn't always necessarily said in a lot of people when looking for 
where they want to end up in their career just think that I'm going to take this one route in this job or this company is going to be with me for 10-15 years and a lot of people have done that in the past but then you're not necessarily growing and building on what you've learned from each place but um alongside that I guess though there's probably a lot of challenges and we've spoken about that but I wonder what has been your biggest career challenge overall and how did you kind of overcome it? I'd say there have been two. One's been more on the personal front and one's been more on the professional front. So on the, I'll start with the professional front. On that side, sometimes once you're in an industry, once you're in there, you still need people to champion you and you still need people to back you up, particularly in VC. And I think I'm just a little bit offbeat and I didn't feel like I necessarily had that kind of sponsorship. I didn't have internally a role model of a woman who had done it. I worked for an all male partnership and I didn't know how big a missing piece that would be for my career until much later. That being said, I have a lot of mentors who probably don't know that they're my mentor. And that was something that I kind of cultivated as an idea a few years ago when I said, okay, I don't necessarily have access to these top VCs or whatever, they're very busy and you know, why would they want to mentor me? Um, but I follow their careers like a hawk. I am extremely interested in how they built their careers, how they started, what they did. So I consider myself to have a lot of mentors that aren't necessarily actually mine. And they, they probably don't, some of them know I exist. Um, and it would be really embarrassing to name names now. Um, but some of them might not know I exist, but finding those people who you look up to and um, kind of seeking inspiration from them, whether you know them or not, is something that I've had to adapt to. And then I'd say the other big challenge has actually been maintaining health. So the one thing about all these career choices is that they're intense. They're not nine to five jobs. I think when I was in venture, I probably worked 70% of my weekends because I was working so hard to build this fund, to build my own reputation, to get deals done. And I'm 29 now. So I've spent my entire 20s decade working on average 70, 80 hour weeks and it takes its toll. And I think I got started in my career very naive that, oh, my body can take it because in the beginning it could, but then, then things start to get complicated. So I'd say I didn't value my health enough and until it became a challenge. And now I've become a lot better at kind of putting in checks and balances and trying to make sure that I stay okay. But I think there are a lot of people who are in the position who've hustled very hard. And I worry about it for the next generation that 
if they feel invincible that they can keep on working like this I don't want them to have the realization that I had I think also recognizing recognizing that as a challenge is part of the solution because if you don't recognize it then it's just going to keep going on in that cycle of kind of not dealing with it until it gets really really bad um but it's great to see that as much as it looks like you've had an amazing career which you have every every career and every part of what you've done comes with its challenges and that's natural um but I wanted to finally ask you a question which I always ask everyone um which is what motivates and inspires you it's quite a big question but it's quite interesting to see where everyone's kind of motivations come from yeah I'd say it's a big question I'd say in terms of in terms of inspiration I think I'm always going to be someone who has a a founder mentality and an investor mentality inside me and I'm always going to be kind of wrestling with the two and trying to figure out what I want to do. So I think the motivation is I still don't know exactly what I want to be when I grow up, but I want to keep learning. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm just so grateful to my parents, my husband, my family for all the opportunities that I've been afforded. And I want to make sure I keep paying that back and call me traditional but I owe so much to all of them that it's always motivation to carry on and then I guess I just want to keep on being the best version of myself personally professionally and I'm just so obsessed with personal growth I read a really good quote the other day actually um I was reading a book written by Vishen Lakhiani and he wrote in that um, or he was quoting somebody else unknown saying grow so much that every time your friends see you they have to adjust to this slightly new version of you and while I think that's a little bit extreme I take the spirit of that of you know next time next time we speak Faith, I hope I've learned something new and we can talk about a new a new aspect of tech or venture or something else but yeah I think my my motivation will stop when I don't have the passion to learn anymore and I'm not done yet and I think I've seen that from everything we've discussed because you constantly seem to love trying to figure out something new and just going from one end of the spectrum to the other and learning as much as possible through that journey and it's really insightful to um, have spoken to you and I'm sure some of what you have said has been really valuable to our listeners particularly many of whom are students and who are at university and want to figure out where they want to take their careers so thank you so much for coming on and speaking to me. Thank you for having me Beth, and thank you for for hosting such a great podcast. I heard the episode with Ahana and um, I think, you know, there's, there's just so much wisdom. I learned so much from that too. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the exploratory journey, and I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to follow all our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to stay up to date with our future episodes.